Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Suk Yun Yang, who is the founder of Cafe Ruma, which is a cafe in Sydney that specializes in kue and comfort food from home. In the following conversation, we talked about how living in Australia has transformed the both of us and we discussed whether or not a foreigner is able to position him or herself as an authority on our food as well as the difficulties in pricing Singaporean food. Can you tell me which year did you come to Australia and, and why did you move? So I first came to Australia to do my undergrad uh, and then I moved back to Singapore to work and I was working in the finance industry. Um, I guess it was, uh, I worked about seven years and it was quite intensive. I was working in private banking. So I was working longer hours. I mean, I enjoyed the work that I was doing and I had great, like worked with great people. But I think seven years, seven and a half years in, I think I was getting a bit tired. And then also like I was getting a bit more um, anxious. Yeah. And then my sister was um, studying in Sydney at the time and we would visit her, you know, every year, like my whole family would visit. So every time I come back to Australia, I always think about like, oh, you know, the, the days where I was in Perth, you know, and I missed like the weather, I missed the, somehow maybe every time I went coming back, I felt like very relaxed. Maybe it was holidays. I don't know what it was, but so when I wanted to take a break, like a career break, I thought, why not, you know, go back, go to Sydney where my sister is. At least I know that I have family there. And then at the same time, um, I did some studies, I guess. I wanted to do something to, it was still in the finance area. I still did a, um, I did a master's of business mm-hmm. law. Uh, and I guess I just wanted to take that break, but not do nothing. So I did a course that was related. So just in case, like, you know, I wanted to find work in Australia or go back to Singapore, at least that option was kind of there. So once I came mm-hmm. back to study, I just ha- I just haven't left, I guess. I then, you know, stayed on since then. So I've been here about 11, yeah, 11 years. Mm. So why start Cafe Ruma? I mean, it's quite a jump, right? To go from finance, which was what you were doing, to to making kuih. I mean, it's like <laughs> two ends of the spectrum, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Um. When I finished my studies, I actually worked for one of the major banks in Australia for uh, four years, actually. I was there for four years. Um, my husband was the one who actually wanted a career change. So um, my family, we, we, we've always been sort of like into food. My mom actually used to have a restaurant in Singapore. She, she used to run um, a, a cafeteria, actually, for about nine years for one of the electronic companies. Wow. And then she branched out and started a restaurant for a few years, and I was working and helping her out. So we... I guess I've been involved in food here and there for quite mm-hmm. a while. Um, and then when my husband wanted a career change, we were like, hey, you know, um, uh, maybe we should think about setting something up. It might be interesting and everything. So uh, my brother, him and myself, us three, we sort of worked on a place together, but he was primarily going to be the one that was like in charge. Um, but then, then I had a baby and then I had to stop work. Um, at the time, like after the give birth and everything. Um, and I just basically stuck on into the business and just never went back into corporate again, I guess. And then the queer making, I sort of fell into it because 
um, I gave birth 10 days after the shop opened. At the time, I was like, try, my, my idea was to make simple cakes, you know, like chiffon cakes and butter cakes, things that like we would eat at home, just simple, none of the mousse and all that kind of stuff. Not Because I'm not really a professional baker anyway, but I just wanted something that was easy to eat and like good with coffee, something simple. But because I had to give birth, I was in yeah. hospital. And at the time, because we just opened and we were really lucky because we got featured in um, Gourmet Traveler, like in the first week of opening. So suddenly, like uh, people were coming and we couldn't not have anything. So my mom was here helping me out when I was, you know, in hospital. So I said, mom, just make something. And she doesn't know how to bake. She only knows how to make kueh. So I said, I don't care why it is, just make something. It's okay if it's kueh, it's kueh. Because anyway, the name of our cafe means home, right? So it's still mm. connected. So she did it, and then from then on, I guess it kind of stuck. So I, so I, I, it was, it's my own journey as well in the years that we had um, Ruma that, you know, I slowly picked up how to make kuih as well. Yeah, and did you ever feel like, oh my God, that is, uh, you know, it was a serendipitous kind of ex- like experience as to why you guys went into kuih making, right? But were you ever like, oh, sh- we shouldn't have, you know, I mean, like, it's so much work now that people are expecting kuih instead of like, you know, chiffon cakes and, and easy to eat um, <laughs> with, with coffee. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, kuih making is not a easy process, right? Yeah. So sometimes I do like think, oh, you know, how, how did we like end up? This is not, this is not what I planned, you know, like, and, but, but at the same time, yeah, I gained a lot from the whole journey as well, from, mm. you know, learning because, I, I mean, when I live back home, my mom would make kueh. Otherwise, it's just so easy to buy. Like, there's like, you know, it's in a sense, when you are young, working very busy, professional in back home, you know, when you get all these things so simply, like, you don't really think like, oh, you know, should I spend, you know, five hours standing trying to mow, like, how many uncle kueh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, in a sense, yeah, I sometimes I look back and I go like, oh, okay, how did we end up here? Why, why, like, why, why am I doing this like this, you know? Like, this is not what I imagined uh, living in Australia. This is what yeah. I'll be doing. But um, I guess it kind of like worked out in a way, even uh, from on a pers- personal level for myself. Yeah. yeah. And what was that personal journey like learning how to make kueh from your mom? Uh... A lot of trial and error, I guess. Trial and error. And I mean, if anything, I got out of it is um, practice. Practice Mm. makes perfect, I guess. I mean, I'm far from perfect. Obviously, there's a lot to learn. But, you know, there's a difference with maybe the first kueh I ever made and what I am doing right now. Like the way it looks. Even my husband comments on it like, oh, wow. No, I look back, you know, three years ago, your kueh doesn't look like this, you know? Um. You know, it, it's things that you make with your hands, right? Yeah. You can follow a recipe and everything, but it's like uh, the person making it, the touch and everything makes a difference, mm. you know? And, and in that sense, you know, with every batch of kueh that I make, you know, if, you know, some days maybe, you know, temperatures might be different mm. and then some days something comes out a little bit better than the previous batch. That's that sense of achievement, I guess, especially also because I did not envision that I'll be doing this like mm. um, <laughs> now. So being able to produce something like that, I, I guess gives me a little bit of pride like, in that sense. 
Yeah, I, I find it so shocking that your background is so different from, you know, what I would envision. You know, when I looked at your kui, it really looks very, very professional as if you've been doing it for decades. And um, you can see that uh, the imprints are very defined and it's all very neat. I, I thought you had some professional um, experience. So was this entirely a self-learned, self-learned kind of journey or was there any... Uh, professional experience any any time in your life no wow um i've never worked in a professional kitchen that's amazing yeah i mean i've, I've only like helped my mom out but my mom never sold kuei so kuei was always a at home kind of thing yeah um yeah it was just you know like uh whenever i go back to singapore i would like obviously just go around and see how you know what people do how people cut things and then i'll we will practice my mom would like sometimes we eat something and then we go like hmm you know this is good like how can we sort of improve so we do sort of a bit of trial and error mm. some recipes are ones that my mom has been making for us from young uh, some of them we just sort of like you know we go through books and we read right like she has this maybe a recipe that she learned from a community center years ago yeah. and then she's been making it but then we had to adapt you know, with the ingredients, type of ingredients that we find here. And so it's just all like really trial and error. And um, so no professional kitchen. It's just my mom and myself and yeah. just observing, I guess, and asking questions when we were home. Like, you know, even things like, uh, how do you slice? Oh, how do you guys slice it so neatly? For example, I, I remember my mom asked before and then we learned little tricks and here and there. Mm. Yeah. So you said that your mom makes kueh at home. What kind of kueh does she make at home? Strongest memory, kueh lapis. Like oh, wow. birthday parties will always have the rainbow. You know, so it's a very childhood thing. Yeah. Uh, primarily, she would make um, uh, like the uh, binka ubi, which is the baked tapioca. Yeah. And then, to be honest, I think... Kueh lapis is probably the strongest. Other than that, I don't remember her making kueh as much like mm. in my late, like as we grew up as much as... Yeah, but kueh lapis is a staple, which is why um, even now, like my daughter, right? Like first kueh like, in- that I introduced to her was kueh lapis and it's like her favourite. Yeah, because I mean, it's so easy yeah. to love, right? Every child loves kueh lapis, all the, all the different colours and the way you <laughs> peel layer by layer. So your daughter yeah. has grown up entirely in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, she is uh, five and a half now. Mm. Yeah. So have you been very intentional as a parent in trying to pass down the same kind of, um, you know, kitchen memories that you had growing up watching your mom make kueh? Um, she actually attempted making a kueh lapis a week ago. You know, I let her choose all the colours that she wanted. And then, you know, she was just like standing on a chair, pouring the, 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 the you know, the, the mixture in and and then she saw, you know, what she made. She ate her own results. Mm. So that was quite fun. Um, to be honest, she's not a great eater at the moment. Mm. So I would love to sort of like um, have her eat a lot more things that we like that we ate growing up. Um, but it's very hard. Like this age, it's really hard right now. Mm. So as much as I can, you know, if there's something I know that she would enjoy, then I try to sort of like let her... Um, eat more of it, you know, things more acceptable, like chicken rice, that kind of thing, those kind of things she, she loves. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, in, intentional in to a certain extent, but at the end of the day, I guess I'm like any other parent, I just want my child to eat. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I think it can be so dif- difficult. I feel that a lot of my friends who live abroad, I, I think they swing either way, right? Like either you're super intentional about it, about introducing your your kids to flavors that you that are so formative of your own personal experience and your identity, um, versus you know like completely going the other way and adopting a new new way of life because it's just so difficult to hold on to your identity when you're living abroad um, because the food is so different yeah. from what everyone else eats um, and also because it's so hard to find ingredients sometimes so how do you um how do you normally yeah. cook at home is it normally like um, western or is it singaporean um i cook mostly like homely dishes i guess like things like my mom would make at home uh luckily for me my daughter's palate is very asian so we eat rice a lot like rice (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um you know it could be like steamed fish it could be just simple stir fry sometimes we make like curries and all that Mm. and then if i'm lazy maybe i'll fry like like bihun you know like which is like one pot it's easier but we do, you know, once in a while we'll, we'll eat um, like, you know, pasta and that kind of stuff, which mm. depends on like the day. Um, but yeah, I try to cook a lot more like how my mom sort of cooks at home. So we'll get like two, three dishes at the table. Um, the only thing I don't do much of, which I kind of miss, is like soups. Yeah. So my, at home, you know, my mom will always have like peanut soup or like mm. black bean soup, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that. And, and and she would boil it for hours, but I don't do that much here because mm. it takes so much time. And also, um, my husband's not really a soup drinker. So in the end, I'm the only one taking it. So other than bakute, I actually don't make that much of like that soups and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I think you're doing really well. I mean, a lot of my friends, they cook a lot of Western stuff and they don't know how to make basic things like um, curries or even steamed fish. It's just very difficult or very, like they don't even conceive themselves making it at home on a weeknight basis. It, it, I guess Asian food, there's a lot of nuance, you know, mm-hmm. like to the way like with cooking right so and it's, it's, it's actually very technical yeah. you know even steam fish like even for me sometimes when I steam fish right it's like how to, do you catch what's the perfect timing you know you don't want to overcook it you don't want to undercook it as well mm. you know and I can see why if people don't um, cook as often they will feel intimidated like it's you know maybe it's easier to pan fry or maybe just don't because the cleanup for cooking fish at home is, is a lot especially with people living in apartments and all that yeah. You know, so um it's it's just living habits, I guess, that, yeah. that's making I I, yeah. love, I love that word that you use, nuance, because um I feel that a lot of people don't understand how nuanced um Asian food really is. Um and when I moved mm. here, there was something that I felt was a lack in, in understanding from a Western point of view. I mean Mm, I, I, I can look at recipes online and I realize that, you know, like it's all catered towards a, a certain uh, audience, right? It's very, you know, for the for the white Australian kind of thing. Um, so did you feel that there was a gap in understanding of our cuisine here in Australia? I think uh, Australians are most familiar probably with like Thai and Vietnamese food, like in Asia. Yeah. You know, so when you come across a lot of recipes or television 
covering any Asian sort of like recipes, you do find that when they say something Asian salad or Asian something, it tends to be, it tends to always have like sweet, salty, sour, and you know, because it's their knowledge of like Thai and all that. Um, Singaporean and Malaysian food, I guess, um, while Malaysian food is sort of gaining quite a lot of popularity these days, you know, with, with um, Australians, there's still sort of that um, lack of understanding that that it's we don't necessarily have the same kind of flavor profiles. Like some dishes that we have at, um, that we eat growing up don't have like the 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 sweet sour and the and the different. You know what I mean? Mm. So they might not excite like the Australian palate as much as as the Singaporean palate, but you know, that, that that grew up on that thing, that we have nostalgia and everything attached to it. If they didn't have a true understanding of uh, the kind of uh, flavours and maybe sometimes, you know, certain foods are, are associated with history, why some foods came to be, you know, for us, mm. um, they, it's hard for them to kind of like latch on to certain things, you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. like if like Thai food and Vietnamese food, it's so much easier for them to perceive because of the the, the flavour profiles that they're very used to. Yeah, and I, I think also Singaporean or Malaysian cooking, it's so broad and it's so diverse and it's so hard to understand because it's so rojak, right? I mean, like, you know, when you think about Thai food or Vietnamese food, um, it, it is almost like very pure and very of itself. I mean, there are, of course, mm. culinary influences, like, for example, with khao soy, you, you can see some Muslim um, variations of the dish, Um but I think for Singaporean cooking or Malaysian cooking, I myself struggle to really explain what it is, you know, uh, or, or to define yeah. it as in like, what is our cuisine, you know, to, to explain it to a white person. It's extremely difficult. Yeah, I agree. I mean, because we are multicultural, see? Mm. So is Indian food Singaporean? Yeah, I mean, we eat it in Singapore, but I guess, you know, maybe to someone that is not from Singapore, they see it as Indian food, not Singaporean food, you know what I mean? Yeah. And say there's a there's a Singaporean kind of version of say a biryani, but then they might only know that because in biryani is originally say from you know a different part of the world. It's just because um in Singapore it's such a melting pot of like different cultures that they all sort of start to like I, I agree with you. I mean it's hard to explain, you know, like like oh why is this Singaporean and not you know, m- m- like, w- or even like, even as simple as, oh, sometimes people get confused between Malaysia, Malay, Malay in Singapore and Malaysian. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it can be Chinese or Indian, but Malaysian. Mm. And then you don't grow up eating Indi- uh, Malay food. Mm. And then when you try to explain that, oh, but in Singapore we have Malays. And then they go like, oh, you know, I'm Malays from Malaysia. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I do yeah. I do believe that it's like really confusing for people. I mean, even for myself, like what is like I don't I don't really um grasp the 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 complete differences between Singaporean and Malaysian cuisines because I mean a lot of you know, a lot of us think that it's very similar, right? But I feel that the mm. more I speak with Malaysians, the more I feel like it's a completely different food culture or cuisine on its own, you know. Um, a while ago, yeah. I was speaking with um, 
Sharifa Nadira, as well as um, uh, the founders of Periok, which is like a, a resource website for all things uh, Malaysian food related. And the mm. dishes that they were they were mentioning, I've never ever heard of before. So what do you think are some differences mm. between Singaporean and Malaysian food? Some some dishes, I think, are just naming the just the naming conventions. You know, you might call it one thing in Singapore, but then it's just called something else in Malaysia. So sometimes it's not necessarily um, different. It's just named differently. And then there will there will be some things that are distinctly different. Like for example, people always compare Singapore Hokkien Mee and KL Hokkien Mee, but they are like two completely different dishes. Completely. So again, it's a naming thing. Like just because it's similar name doesn't make it the, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's like comparing apples and pears. Um, broadly speaking, I do find I mean this is like generic. It doesn't apply like to everything, but I do find that Malaysian, especially like Chinese hawker street kind of food, tend to use more dark soy, mm. like dark sauce. Um, and then uh. And, and, and Singaporean one, you know, like wonton mee and all that, it's it's a bit different. Mm. So when I speak to different customers, you know, they'll say, oh, I grew up eating the black wonton mee. Mm. But in Singapore, people don't really eat the black, the black one, yeah. you know. So there are um, some differences here and there. And I think Singapore, like especially noodle dishes, a lot of, they have a lot of like dry versions. Mm. You know, like you got your hemi, your prawn noodles, right? You, you've got the soup version, you got a dry version. Whereas in Malaysia, people just eat like soup version. Mm. So, you know, there are small differences here and there. It's very hard to pinpoint, but I think it's also got to do with geographic. Mm. So like, for example, um, Peranakan food that we eat maybe mainly in Singapore, it's diff- it's more like the one people eat maybe in Malacca. Mm. But the Peranakans that are in, you know, further up north in Penang, they eat like a different type of like, you know, different dishes in Peranakan food. So it's all got to do with different geographical, you know, parts. So there, there are like so many variations and this makes me think of something that Jess Ho wrote in her newsletter. So to all listeners who are mm. listening, Jess Ho is actually this um, Melbourneian food writer who has been writing about food for decades. And she has this newsletter and I actually found the excerpt that I was talking to you about. So, um, mm. okay, let me read it to you. So it says... For my entire career, I've seen people claim that they are an expert in cuisine that is not their own. How? I don't care how long you spent living in that country, how many books you own, and how many Google Google searches you have done. It is impossible to be an expert in something that is not part of your identity. Even if you're completely obsessed with a country's food, you have no understanding of minute geographical changes, how food traveled, oral history, economic factors, and of course, taste memory. There is absolutely no substitute for having your grandmother make you a dish from dust and dirt, passed down to her by her own mother that she claims tastes nowhere as good as her mother's version, while you nod and wonder to yourself how she made bits of nothing taste good in the first place. So I think, you know, there are a lot of um, what she wrote about that ties into what you were mentioning, like all the, you know, subtle geographical variations. So do you believe that, um, you know, a, a white person or a foreigner who, who say, lives in Malaysia or Singapore for a period of time can ever position him or herself as a, an expert of our food? That's a tough one. To use the word expert, mm. like I always... Um, 
I mean, maybe there are experts out there, but I find that like our, you know, our cuisine is so vast and so varied mm. that how do you ever like become an expert and feel like, okay, you know, I've learned so much and I know so much and that's it. You know, there's just so much more to, to, to keep on learning. Even like people like us who had grown up eating that food, that's part of us. Mm. You know, I can't claim to like, you, you to know about something just cause I grew up mm. eating it. You know, if I, flipped it on the other side, right, of that argument or that statement, I mean, that excerpt that you just read. Yeah. Um, to a certain extent, I mean, I do agree in the sense that sometimes um, living it, like when, you know, from your younger years and it having been in, like, um, the family, you, you know, it's just like uh, you can learn a country's language, but it's hard to know like the slang and everything and the food that you eat, you might eat it like on the street. That's how it is. But when you go into someone's home, the food is completely different. So there are so many parts of like our cuisine that maybe people outside of Singapore and Malaysia may not even know about because you only get to eat it at that your dinner table, your own dinner table at home. So, I mean... I think I have seen people who know of a lot of who have lived in Malaysia a long time and they've they have um they're very credible and well known and even I would you know be able to learn something from all these people because maybe they have bothered to do a lot more research than I did even though I grew up there you mm. know I was given all this information just by being like Malaysian or Singaporean mm. right but there's so much more that sometimes people do learn about that we don't. Yeah. But I, in that sense, I like I said, I do also agree that, you know, what they learn about or they research about may extend to a certain point. It, it, you know what I mean? Like we will have things that they might not, um, they might not be able to experience because we grew up that way, but they will also maybe be armed with knowledge that we don't know ourselves, like our history and things like that, which I think a lot of, Speaking generically, a lot of Malaysians or Singaporeans grow up eating the food without really thinking about the stories behind it or like mm. the ingredients that go into it, you know, or how is it grown or like things like that. Whereas people who live there and meet Singapore or Malaysia at home might have so much more insight, you know, mm. just like the episode that you did with Robert um, on the kopi. Yeah. Like yeah. he knows so much more about kopi <laughs> probably than, you know, an average right? Singaporean uh, about the Kopi culture, probably. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a hard question to, to a hard topic to discuss in that sense, because I think you can look at it both ways. But generically, I just think that it's hard to ever be so-called an expert about it, mm-hmm. about a particular yeah, I think, cuisine type. You know? I think like expert is a very loaded word. What about authority? If someone calls a white person an authority of Singaporean or Malaysian mm. cooking, would, would that sit well with you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really putting you in a spot here. <laughs> yeah. I would say um, if I didn't know the background of what this person do, why is this person an authority? Like, you know, maybe the my first reaction would be like, why? Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, you never know like what that ex- the experience of that person would be. Mm. So I wouldn't also be so harsh to say, no, there's no way, you know, mm-hmm. that, that he will know this better than, than any one of us. 
you know, because everybody's experience is yeah. different, yeah. you know, and I think that's what's unique about, um, you know, the topic of food, right? Yeah. Um, I think the only time I would have a problem is if that so-called uh, authority comes out and makes like sweeping statements, you know, then I think rather than disregarding the person and, you know, who is the authority, I would probably look at the individual comments that are made about certain assumptions of dishes. That's when I think I would have a problem if that information comes out as slightly inaccurate, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm just thinking what, what exactly it is that we are looking out for, you know? Like you mentioned, you mm-hmm. would go and read up about the person's um, background and history, but while sifting through all that information, what, what would be the, the key parts of his background that you're looking for that would establish his credibility in your eyes? Well, that's a tough one to answer. <laughs> it's very case by case. It's very hard to like just say, yeah. oh, you know, like something. More, more, more likely, I would say if I see something that is not correct, that I will feel, oh, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I will sit up and go, okay, no, this is wrong. And this person yeah. is putting an impression out there, especially with social media these days, right? Like these people are putting out information that might be inaccurate. So that's only when I will go, hey, you know, they might not have proclaimed to be expert. They might say, oh, I'm just really interested in Asian cuisine, for example, mm. you know, but then sometimes that the the representations may not be correct. Yeah. And that's then when I'll, I'll, I'll sit up and go, okay, this is not really right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more on the flip side that, would, that catches my attention. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, were there any instances where you felt, you know, outraged or, or, or you know, upset at the way that the media represented our food um, or demonstrated a lack of understanding? I don't think... Outreach is the right word, I guess. Mm-hmm. But there have been instances where, um, you know, uh, some people say, you know, they ate the, uh, the best. I don't know the best laksa in Australia in the whole world in <laughs> Australia. You know, like I usually have a problem with people making statements like that. Not because I think oh Singapore is the best or Malaysia is the best, but it's just. You cannot claim to have the best when you haven't had like all different types of laksa or the different do you know that like there's so many types of laksa? It's not one type of laksa, you know? Yeah. There's 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 a lot of like there's always a lot of contra- controversy around like like um people making statements like that. And laksa is one very contentious thing that yeah. uh, people in Sydney always talk about because there are some famous, very famous laksa places. Mm. But when you make statements like that, then you forget that there are so many types of laksa that exist in, you know, Singapore, in Malaysia, mm. different states, different ones. And people don't know that. And and when you make sweeping statements like that, it sort of, um, how do I say I, I just don't think it's fair. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. So I, yeah, I wouldn't say it's outrage. It's just more I feel like, oh, okay, you know. Yeah, because I mean, not- it did. It discredits like all the laksas in Singapore and Malaysia, which is where it was born, right? If you say that a laksa yeah. in Australia is like the best. Um, I felt this exact sentiment yesterday, actually, when I was on Instagram. And I saw um, something that a food writer had written uh, about Tony Tan's 
char siu recipe and Tony is like a fantastic friend of mine and uh, I love him very much and he I, I feel that he he's done a lot for Asian food representation in Australia um, so so this yeah. food writer wrote something like oh Tony Tan's char siu recipe is the goat the greatest of all time. Mm. <laughs> and when I read that, it just rubbed me the wrong way because as much as I feel like Tony's a great cook, um, how can you say that that his version of a, of a Chinese recipe that is written for a white person is the greatest of all time, you know? Mm. Uh, it just really frustrated me that that, that kind of thing um, would, would be said or published even. Yeah, it happens quite a lot, a lot, yeah, more often, right, with than, than mm. people think probably, and especially because of social media as well nowadays, it's so easy to put words out there, but, you know, whether it really is yeah. the best or the, you know, it's, everything should be taken with a grain of salt. But I guess that's, that's the way the world of food yeah. media works, right? I mean, um, you, you, you see this kind of uh, words all the time to get the SEO traction, <laughs> like, oh, the best... Or, or or you know top top place you top places you have to go mm. to try this you know um so I, I think there's quite a bit of misinformation um so you know I feel that through living in Australia I've become more sensitized to all these nuances of the way the West perceives our food you know when when I lived in Singapore it was like a happy little bubble you yeah. know cultural appropriation felt so far away but I mean you know, that was back then, before social media became like a huge mm. thing, right? Um, and then now when I'm living in Australia, um, you know, maybe it's because of social media, maybe it's because I'm living abroad and, and having this direct contact with with um, Australians firsthand. Um, I, I feel like I became a lot more protective towards my food or, or you know, my culture, my cuisine, my heritage. Um, do you feel yourself transforming through living here yeah i think so I, I i definitely feel how do i say i i wouldn't use the word patriotic i'll just say like <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean like i find like i have stronger opinions i guess about um uh not just not just singaporean like just being you know being asian right um like i feel how do I say it? when people have stereotypes about how Asians are so like you know accomplished or achieved like that kind of, I feel that 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 pride as well. <laughs> you know, but when you're home, you don't really think about it because you 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 are we are all Asians, you know, like living there, right? Whereas here now, you feel um, I guess I do feel that more sense like the stronger sense of pride in like our culture, and I think also because of the work I'm doing and I'm you know, trying to represent a part of, like, who we are, that I feel it mm -hmm. a lot more, like, uh, you know, more immensely. Like, you know, the, the when people say, oh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've never had this before. I didn't know this is from whatever. It gives me that sense of pride. And I think um, I wouldn't have had this experience if I didn't live here. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, when when I was living in Singapore, I mean, it's so uncool to be patriotic, right? Like, don't want to go for NDP, National Day Parade, you know, so uncool to like fight for the tickets. <laughs> I, was just thinking, I was just thinking the other day, right, that when I lived in Singapore, I remember I never want to wear like red and white. 
together. Yeah. Whereas here, it's probably, I wouldn't mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, were you always, um, did you always feel proud of your heritage? I mean, um, you know, we, we all know that a lot of Singaporeans yeah. don't value our food. You know, we love eating it. That's one thing. But we don't really see the craft behind it. So was that something that oh. you only realized through your work at Cafe Ruma? Or was it something that you were always conscious of because of your mom? Um, I think I think it was something I was conscious of, but I never really went further than just knowing. You know what I mean? Like, I never went further into, like, reading up more about it or, like, or like learning beyond, you know, whatever that I was eating at home or even just outside. I mean, even though I lived in Singapore almost, you know, like, three quarters of my life, um, I mean, I wouldn't have eaten every single thing that is there, right? Whereas, you know, being here and through my work makes, has made me a lot more inquisitive, mm around like, oh, this, I see this, and I, I will ask my mom, oh, I haven't eaten this before. How, how come I haven't, you know, seen it? Or like, and then, or even things like kueh, you know what I mean? Like, I would read up about kueh. I would read up about kueh from different cultures, right? Malay and, and Eurasian and all that. Whereas, back home, I never did those things. I would just go to like Bengawan Solo and just pick what I like, and that's it. And so even my mom would say, I don't remember you being interested or like, you know, wanting to eat kueh even when you come home you know even like undergrad days or whatever when I was living overseas I, I think maybe it's an age thing yeah. maybe maybe it's that uh, living away from home feeling like that need, need to connect more and also just knowing more about myself so that I can share it with more people or even share it with my daughter in the future that's kind of like spurred me to read up you know on it a lot more you know yeah mm, yeah definitely mm. i also feel the same i mean like you know you you crave for the strangest things when you're homesick like uh you realize that um you know now now you appreciate things that you never used to appreciate for me it was teochew moi you know i i never liked teochew porridge because when i was living in singapore i was always a cantonese porridge kind of girl uh I oh. felt that it was more flavorful. I was like, why would anyone want to eat something that tasted just like boiled rice um, in, in, a, in, you know, in a lot of water? I just couldn't get it. But the first time I made it for myself at home, after not having it for so long, I was like, oh my God, this is the most comforting thing ever, you know? Oh, and then when I put I love the huh? You love it, huh? I love the same way. Yeah. <laughs> my... My sis would ask me, I remember my first, um, when I first moved here, 2010, my first, because I think I moved here and then a few days after, a few weeks after it was my birthday and my sister asked me, what do you want to eat? I said, toju Wow. But you're right, it's com- it's comforting. And things that you don't, um, may not have rushed to eat, you know, when you used to live back home because it's just there all the time, are the things that you probably miss the most and suddenly you feel like eating and there's nowhere to go to find it yeah you know okay there's something that i saw recently i'm not sure if you follow them as well but there's this instagram account that is super popular in singapore it's called the woke no. salary man I don't so it's basically like a, it's like an instagram account that teaches you about finance uh-huh. personal finance yeah, and they, they, they share about it in a very easy to understand way and like humorous way. Um, so they, they did this Instagram poll 
So the first question was, um, how many of you think that um, hawkers should be paid more? And like I, so I participated in that poll and I saw that majority of the people voted, yes, you know, every yeah. like hawkers should be paid more. And then the next question was, how many of you would pay $8 for a nasi padang meal in a hawker center? And I voted and I saw majority of people said no, you know, and, and I mean, for me, right, like through running Singapore noodles, through living abroad, um, I, I have a newfound appreciation for our cuisine. And I do believe that that we have to do whatever we can to ensure the longevity of hawker, of the hawker trade, hawker business. But even I was like, you know, caught in the crossfires when mm. I answered the second question, you know. I was like, if I can feel this way, if I cannot like answer this question without flinching slightly or like thinking hard about it, like what about a lay person? It would be so reflexive for them to say, no, I wouldn't pay $8. You know what I mean? Even though everyone wants the hawkers to do better. Um, So I was wondering if you have any insights into this, you know, given that I'm sure you have had struggles in pricing um, the things that you sell Mm. at Cafe Ruma as well. Um, Price is a very sensitive topic, I guess, in a sense, because I think not just Singaporean or Malaysian food suffer from it. I think generally Asian food just suffers from this uh, notion that it should be cheap, it should be good value, it should be, you know... Um, but like there's this, obviously there are, there are groups of people that are trying to promote Asian food and saying, Hey, you know, Asian food is not as simple as this, as much as, as if you're willing to pay $30 for a bowl of pasta, like a plate of chakwetiao requires all these separate ingredients, which needs to be prepared separately. Right. So why would you not pay that? You know what I mean? I think, um, Mm. in, Australia, I guess the context is different only because also people are already used to a certain price they pay when they dine out, right? Even if it's Asian food, it's not going to be $3 or $4, you know? It's always still like over 10 bucks, say for example, right? And even over 10 bucks is considered on the lower side of the spectrum because people are paying like 30 bucks for a bowl of pasta. So, and because the labor cost in Australia itself is, is so high, that sometimes, you know, like um, when Asian, how do I say, Asian restaurants who price themselves, I, I think are underpricing themselves because how do you pay the right wage, like, you know, the legal wage and still be able to produce quality, right? So mm. price is something that we grapple with only because there's, there's always that comparison. Like, I think in mm-hmm. Australia and for Australians, because they're used to a certain price, they will pay if that's the price it's meant to be, okay? But um, when you have Singaporean and Malaysian customers, there's always a group of them that already understand that that's the way it is because I'm paid, you know, $25 an hour. So obviously, I'm ex- the, the person that's making my food would expect to be paid similarly, for example, right? So they know that the price of food would be this, Right? But then there's that mm. also that group of people who will always say, okay, bacho me is $3 at home. Like, why am I paying, uh, you know, $18 for a bowl of bacho me here? But I think mm. I was listening to one of your podcasts and I think um, uh, 
then he made a very good point. This guy called Gregory, mm. Gregory from Hungary. Yeah. yeah. So he said this thing about hawkers in Singapore are focused on the the taste, not so much on the the the, the provenance, like where the food, where you know what kind of prawn you're using or what kind of like you know it's just more on the taste. Whereas in Australia, like I can't speak for everyone, like but at, le- at least for the things that we do, like for example, if I make laksa, I buy like fresh like tiger like fresh king prawns from the fish market. You know, we boil them, we peel them, we, there's all that labor you know, that kind of thing. So in my opinion, it's very different. There's no shortcuts. So hence why, um, from a pricing perspective, even though sometimes I feel pressured to um, lower the price to mm-hmm. make it more appealing because it's Asian food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we have to stand our ground in that sense because if we don't understand or put value to the food that we make, how then do we show people that the food that we make is of value? You know what I mean? Mm, totally. Yeah. Um, I, I really like what you said, and I think it's a fantastic point. Um, and I also do know that there are some hawkers who are meticulous about the sourcing of their ingredients. Like uh, I know that um, there's this rojak stall in Dunman, right? Um, the uncle actually sources the right heko from like this um, specific, shop in Malaysia and like he insists on 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 specific kind of peanuts that he he mm. rolls himself and grinds um so I'm just wondering is it um is it in the marketing you know um I mean if he's if he's uh if he is explicit and says okay you know my my heko is always sourced from this place and my mm. peanuts are always sourced from this place and you know my cuttlefish is always you know, source from this sustainable source or like, you know, this um, uh, specific fisherman who ensures quality, would his business improve? Or is it just a difference in culture in that for an Australian, when, when an Australian looks at, at a menu and and he sees, okay, this person sources from, an, from this specific Australian farm or this Australian fishery, then I would be happy to pay more. Do you think it's mm. a cultural difference in the way that we enjoy food that prevents hawkers from listing their food at a higher price? I think it's, uh, uh, how do I say? I think it's, there's so many factors. It's not just looking at the food itself and the cost of the food itself. Sometimes when you price something, right, like say you know that it's going to cost this much and when you price it up, it has to be, say, charged at $10, for example, right? But maybe you needed to charge it at $15 actually to make it sustainable for your business. But then because of pricing perceptions and because of the the ceiling of how like comparable products are, you end up having to lower the price. You know what I mean? So in Singapore, when you're in a hawker setting, it's really hard because even if one person was, was um, you know, marketing themselves that way and everything, there'll be people who will be willing to pay, but then there'll still be people who don't value like the efforts, right? So if say in the hawker store, let's say there's uh, in a hawker center, say there's two people selling rojak, one person sells at ten dollars, one person sells five dollars. There'll be people who will appreciate the guy that sells it for ten, but there'll be people who will never go to the ten dollar store; they just go to the five dollar store. Mm. So, I mean, for Australians, it's um, in if you if you want to compare it plainly, I guess in for Australians, it is cultural in a sense because they are already used to this price, so the mm. price ceiling is already a bit higher. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Like for pastries, like what do you expect to pay? Or even coffee, like as simple as coffee, right? Coffee is say $4 here. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody asks you to pay $8 for a cup of coffee, suddenly you'll be like, oh. But in Singapore, you go to Starbucks, you pay 7 8 bucks for a coffee and people are like, you know, yeah, right? So when Australians go to Singapore, they'll say, oh, why is the coffee at Starbucks like, wait, so much more expensive. Mm-hmm. So it's it's also, it's perceptions, it's... um. Yeah, it goes back and I think there will always be pockets of people who, who will care and value and willing to pay and there will be people who just don't. That's so true. Um, I, th- yeah. I think it's also, um, I, I'm inclined to think that it's also generational. Um, mm. Because, for example, our generation is one that is increasingly willing to pay for the mission of something or, or mm. the values behind something. Uh, for example, I would, you know, the reason why I would pay, say, $8 for Nasi Padang is because I want the hawker trade to continue, you know, and I would be happy to pay extra for that. Um, yeah, I agree. It's the age thing. In yeah. Australia, the one thing that we do fight against as well is with the younger generation because people don't cook their own or especially mm. like hawker foods and stuff because it's quite laborious, right? They're willing to pay. And then when you get to the older generation, you're not just fighting against um, other people who are serving the food. You're fighting against the people who think they can make the food at home for much cheaper. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite funny. So what does your mom think about you pricing your products at Cafe Ruma at that price? Oh. Um, if, if it were her, she'll say it's expensive. Because <laughs> she's, she's so used to like Singapore prices, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean... That's why she always reminds me that, you know, you make sure that like the ingredients you give are like good quality, you know, like the don't scrimp on like the amount, number of prawns that you put into a bowl of like laksa or something like that. You know what I mean? Because you need, you we, if you want to command a certain value mm. of the food, right? Firstly, I mean, obviously we, the, the food has to show for it. So the food has to be good. And then people need to see why it's priced that way and so if you don't present it well or if you very miserly like with the ingredients then it, you know it's it's kind of like a perception thing so she always reminds me about that <laughs> oh yeah I, I think that's a great way to think about it um and i know that on your menu you also have patomi right which i'm very oh. like wow very nostalgic about because that's one thing that i hesitate to make at home because there are so many components right yeah um so i was wondering how you you know how you decided to have that on your menu and were you ever intimidated by the fact that it's a very beloved hawker dish yeah of course until today like you know we've been serving it for two years plus i mean it's a special it doesn't come on all the time but every time i serve it I always like hope there'll be like good feedback, but not just good feedback, good feedback from Singaporeans. Mm. <laughs> because a lot of my customers are from Singapore or Malaysia. And back to the point about you talking about, you know, being in Australia, right? Singaporeans, right? Whenever I make a dish that is clearly Singaporean, so like um bachomi or like Singaporean style kind of like laksa, like suddenly all the Singaporean customers will come out. Like, they'll know, like, this is my food, you know, I want to eat that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm always uh, worried about whether people think this lives up to their, you know, they miss home, for example, now, especially in COVID, a lot of people cannot travel, right? They miss bachomi, you know, and, and 
if they felt that eating the, the bacha mi that we serve at least brings them home, even just for a little bit, it's, it gives me a lot of comfort in that sense. Um, I don't know how it started. I think it was like we were thinking about what other specials. My mom was here for a holiday as well. And then I said, um, you know, mom, how about we try, can we make bacha mi? Because I'm sure, I mean, I've had some customers like Singaporeans who ask me, can you make bacha mi or can you make Hokkien mi or something? So it was one of those dishes that my kitchen could handle as well, just because mm-hmm. uh, we were never really set up to do uh, dishes like that. Yeah. But so whenever I plan a dish, I have to think logistically is something my kitchen can handle. So bacha mi happened to like, seem like it was okay. And then I just kind of worked on it with my mom and then, Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I feel that it's a very gutsy thing to do because I would be terrified if I were to serve a hawker dish to a Singaporean crowd. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. Um, I remember there was once where I was, where I was doing a pop-up for um, a group of four Australians and uh, I was like okay you know you know it seems pretty doable because they are Australians right you know I can introduce them to flavors from home and then I realized that they lived in Singapore for a while and then I started freaking out I was like that means that they have eaten at hawker centers they know how good the food is how can I ever make something that matches up to something that has been perfected for decades you know yeah so how did yeah. you grapple with that? Um, I don't know. I guess I just, I just, I just did it. I guess only because w- when we first did it, I remember like you know the the feedback was was obviously like people haven't tried it, right? So they were like, "Oh, bacho me, okay, I've got to like try it." And then after that, when I started seeing people who ate it the first time come back a second time for it, I think those comments sort of give me fuel to feel like, okay, you know, we, we I think we're on the right track. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if there's improvements that we need to make, of course we continuously make them. Yeah. But um, rather, I, I would say the, the customers coming back gives me that confidence that that um, I can continue serving it. Yeah. You know, bearing in mind, of course, I've also had like... Um, you know, comments like, oh, overpriced hawker food, I'll go back to Singapore and eat. <laughs> but like, okay, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's, I think in every uh, F&B business, you can't please everyone. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to put out something that even it's like the dish that I want to eat like first when I get home, you know what I mean? Mm. And I felt that I think a lot of people would feel the same way as me. Mm. And true enough, I think until today, like we've been doing it, you know, two over years now, it's probably like my most popular special, mm. like the bachomi. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't know whether, I mean, I think everybody's experience of bachomi is very different. Some people like more vinegar. Yeah. Some people less, you know, some people, it's it's very subjective, right? Because we, we get at home, we get to customize our food, right? We can tell the uncle what noodle we want. Yeah. I uh, want to add more vinegar, less vinegar, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Whereas the way I serve it, it's very, um, it's, it's like cafe, you know, it's one, one style we don't yeah. customize different things mm. but i think um as time has gone by like my customers know okay like um i i like it but i want it more vinegar okay ask more more vinegar next time i'll i'll deal with it and they just enjoy it like the way they get to enjoy it now i guess yeah it's almost <laughs> like ordering at a hawker center right where you ask your uncle for more vinegar or like more chili yeah 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 
slowly after a while they kind of know so every time I do certain dishes that like when I see the customers come back like okay bachomi is, is on this customer is going to come back and order bachomi then I know okay we I think I think we do okay yeah mm. especially if older customers give me comment like feedback <laughs> so what have they said to you before Let's say reminds them of home or like oh I haven't eaten bachomi for like 10 years you know like especially wow. like older Singaporeans maybe they don't travel as much or like you know um well I never thought I would find bachomi here you know yeah. in Australia you know comments like that mm. because I think it's also one of those dishes maybe that people don't always make at home mm. and even until now like people who have lived here 20 years sometimes they eat my bachomi they will ask me where you find me pot from like they didn't realize that they can find me pot here. I really love what you're doing, and uh, I I wish I had the opportunity to eat at your your cafe when I was in Sydney. But it's very it was very unfortunate that that I came during a public holiday. Oh <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the next trip after this lockdown, I'll be able to come and meet you in person. That'll be really nice. Thanks for having me. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Suk Yoon Young, who is the founder of Cafe Rumor in Sydney. This content is only made possible by the members who fund Singapore Noodles. If you'd like to sign up to be part of this community that gets access to weekly recipes and video tutorials, as well as monthly virtual classes, then visit the website at sgpnoodles.com. Once again, thank you all for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.